Today, we are beginning a new sermon series, and I don't know about you, but I, I love a good story. Like, like, there's little that is as captivating as a, a good story. In fact, I, I think that maybe a good principle that we should all a, a apply to our lives is, is find as many good storytellers as you possibly can, and then keep them as close to you as possible. After, that, that may not be a good principle, but it would definitely be an entertaining life for sure. But, but, but good storytellers, they, they just have this incredible ability to make us laugh, to make us cry, to make us think, to help us learn without even knowing it. They have this ability to just simply draw us in. My grandpa Turner was an incredible storyteller. I remember so many times whenever I was growing up as a kid, you know, my, my grandparents lived about a mile away from me and I remember going to my Grandpa Turner's house, and, and any time that I was there at night, I always asked him this one question. Grandpa, will you tell me the story of Jesse James? And every single time, my grandpa would sit me on his lap, and he would begin to tell me the story of Jesse James. I'm pretty sure that the characters were always the same, but that was probably the only part of the story that was ever the same. He, he, he was a fisherman. He had the ability to embellish an awful lot, and I loved every single minute of it. And if we would, if we would just think about it, I, I think that there's probably a, a good chance that all of us would realize that so many of our favorite things are attached to storytelling. Our favorite books, our favorite movies, our favorite shows. Maybe your favorite teacher growing up even this past week, as, as, as a man who is widely regarded as the greatest sports broadcaster in history, a man named Vin Scully passed away. As you listen to people talk about Vin Scully and what made him so great, the thing that people constantly say is he had this incredible ability to tell stories. There's simply something so powerful, whether it's good or bad, about a good storyteller. They go beyond just transferring information, and they go to this place of painting a picture to illustrate the information that is being transferred. Good storytellers have the ability to just lower your guard. And so whenever you look at the ministry of Jesus, it's really no wonder that, that Jesus clearly understood this power of storytelling. Storytelling was one of the primary ways that, that Jesus taught the crowds around him and it makes sense whenever you consider that Jesus, who was around during the creation of the world, whenever Jesus, who, who was around, who, who knows the ins and outs of humanity greater than anybody else who has ever stepped foot on this planet, that repeatedly, whenever he wanted to teach, he decided to use story to teach what it meant to be a part of his kingdom and what it looked like to live the life that he desires for us to live. So it really should be no surprise the scientists recently conducted a, some, some research, and it shows that the human brain is actually hardwired to seek out coherent narrative structures and the stories that we hear and tell. And I believe that if Jesus heard that study today, he would, be, he would sit back and say, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I had a hand in that. And I love this. It, it has been said that so many of Jesus' stories, they acted like a picture there was something to, to look deeply into. They acted like a mirror. They were something to reflect upon. They acted as a window 
something to look through to see what was coming down the road. While others of his stories served like a a punchline to a joke. And as we all know, others' stories just simply served as a punch to the gut. But we know these stories that Jesus told as parables. And and there's a 20th century theologian by the name of C.H. Dodd, and and he gave what is largely, widely regarded as one of the best definitions of Jesus' parables, and this is what he said. He said, at its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life. It is arresting the hearer. I love that. It is arresting. Take a captive the, the hearer by its kindness or its strangeness. And leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. In other words, parables exist to make you think. And so over the course of Jesus' ministry, he told like over 40 parables. And one of the primary reasons that Jesus told these parables was simply to get his audience to go, huh? to cause them to dig a little deeper, to go beyond the surface, to better understand the message of his kingdom. I love what Eugene Peterson, the author of the, of the message paraphrase, he, he said this about the way that Jesus' parables worked. He said that they, the parables, they, they relaxed their, 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 their defenses, like the hearers, his audience's defenses. This idea of like, sit back and relax and let me tell you a story. And then when they walked away perplexed, They were wondering what they meant, what the parables meant. And now with the stories lodged in their imagination, and then like a bomb, they would explode in their unprotected hearts. And they would realize that he was talking about God and that they had been invaded. And so over the next month, we're going to look at a few of these parables that Jesus told about what it looked like to be a part of his kingdom. These stories that that illustrate where and how Jesus broadcasted his message, his gospel to the masses and the importance of us continuing to broadcast that same message to the world around us today. So if you have a Bible today, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 here in just a couple of moments. But whenever we get to Matthew chapter 13, by the time we get there, some time has passed since Jesus' ministry began. And and quite a bit has happened, but whenever you put it up against the expectations of the coming Messiah, it it probably seems as though very little substantial change has taken place. Sure, Jesus, he's healed many and he's taught many, but, but there were still so many who were keeping a safe distance from him. And then you had the religious leaders, these, the, these, these men who, who so many of, of the people that Jesus was trying to reach, they went to these religious leaders to, to learn about this coming Messiah. But the religious leaders did not believe that Jesus was the coming Messiah. Instead, they were standing up against Jesus and even plotting to kill him. And so needless to say, there were a lot of people who were very confused about whether Jesus was really the Messiah or not. This included the crowds. It even includes John the Baptist as you read through the Gospels. And obviously over and over again, we see the disciples were more than a little perplexed about exactly who Jesus was, things were not shaping up how they had hoped or imagined. And many Jews, they had always expected that whenever the Messiah finally came, that all of Israel would just flock to him. Yet there were only a few people who were actually rallying around Jesus. 
And it certainly didn't look like he was ushering in a whole new kingdom of any sort. People were just sitting back and trying to figure out exactly who he is. And so as Matthew 13 begins, interest has grown. Crowds were gathered around Jesus just trying to figure all this out, even to the point where Jesus had to get into the water in order to be able to see everybody. And it's here that Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 13 to explain why he was being received the way that he was received. And to do this, he tells the story of a farmer, a farmer who went out to sow some seed, a farmer who, who looks out of the field and in many ways he sees a blank canvas. He sees, he sees this field that is full of possibilities, but, but it, he knew that it wasn't going to produce a crop on its own. Farming requires action by the farmer. It requires a reaction by the plants. It requires a relationship between the farmer and the crop. And so as the farmer goes out, he sows. And, and as he's sowing the seed, some of the seed fell along the path. And the seed that was on the path, the birds of the air, they came and they swooped down and they quickly ate it up. And then some more of the seed, it, it fell along some, some rocky soil. And since there wasn't much depth, it sprung up quickly and it looked good for a moment. But then it was scorched by the sun and the heat around it. Then more, it fell among the thorns and the thorns choked out the plant as it started to grow. But then there was this other seed that fell among the good soil, and it produced a great crop of 30, 60, even 100 fold. And then after Jesus finished telling this parable, the disciples came to him and, and asked him this question. I think this is so fascinating. They, they, said, they asked Jesus, why do you teach this way? Why do you teach this way? You know, we, we know that you were such an incredible communicator. You remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had just taught one of the clearest, most powerful sermons that has ever been preached. And the people, the, the, the crowds, they, it says that they were amazed because he taught differently than all the other teachers. He taught as one who had authority. But if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, this, this teaching that amazed the crowds, it wasn't parable. It was very straightforward. It was very, very clear. And so the disciples are, are confused. Why do, you, why do you teach this way? Why do you feel the need to speak in stories? And in some cases, stories that, that feel more like riddles. And, and Jesus explains to them that it all goes back to a prophecy that's found in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 13, verse 14, it says this. Jesus says that in them, the prophecy of Isaiah, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Where Isaiah said this, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and then I would heal them. In other words, the reason... I teach like this is because there's a whole lot of people who think that they know, but they really have no idea. And it's so easy. I think one of the, the, the common uh, mistakes that we make whenever interpreting what Jesus says here is, 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 is it's easy to think that Jesus was talking about non-religious people. Like these, these non-religious people, they hear, but they don't understand. They, you know, they, 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 they see, but they, they, they can't perceive. Like, like they, they, easy to think that he's talking about non-religious people, but, but he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is speaking about the stubbornness of the Israelites, 
He's speaking about the stubbornness of God's people. He's saying that, that God's people, that, that they've had this message. They've had this message of the kingdom of God revealed to them. They've had the law given to them, but they've never recognized it or fully grasped it. They, they have had it constantly spoken to them, but they have missed it. Because if they had grasped it, something would have changed and they would have been forgiven. They would have been healed. But then Jesus turns his attention back to the disciples and he says this, But blessed are your eyes because they see. And blessed are your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see it. And longed to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Isaiah, he would have loved to have been able to experience what you are experiencing. Jeremiah, Nehemiah, all of these people would have loved to have experienced what it is that the disciples were able to experience. But Jesus goes on and kind of throws the disciples a little bit of a bone. And he goes, to, goes on to explain this parable that they just clearly didn't understand. And he shows that, that where the seed lands, it really matters. Because where it lands and how it relates, is it, it, it all is relative to the condition of different people and their hearts. So in verse 18, this is what Jesus says. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. This is the seed that is sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who, who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And then whenever trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they, they quickly fall away. Then the seed falling among the thorns re, refers to someone who hears the word, but, worries, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, they choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This is genuinely one of the most beautiful stories ever told. In Mark's telling of this story, he, he lets us know that Jesus says that, that if you want to understand any parable, you have to understand this parable. Different hearts receiving the same message in different ways, the the first heart is, is, is the hard heart. The first soil is, is, is the hard heart. It's this unreceptive heart, the, the, the seed that fell along the path. You hear the words of Jesus, but you're not moved by the words of Jesus. Through decisions, through mistakes, through, through unrepentant sin, you have allowed your heart to become so hard and so calloused that as God moves you, feel nothing. And I don't want you to ever mistake this. It's not that God has stopped moving. It's not that the Spirit has stopped speaking. It's that you've stopped noticing and you've stopped listening. This comes from areas of our lives that we just simply refuse to trust God with. It comes from sin struggles that we have that we just have no interest in changing. It comes from an unrepentant heart. And the longer that we stay this way, the more we invite the evil one to continually pluck away the word of God from 
our hearts. We have completely turned a deaf ear to the Spirit's voice in our lives, which leads us to a relationship that is far more familiar with the evil one than with Jesus. You have the seed that fell among the rocky soil, and and we have this superficial heart. This heart that, 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 that it looks good for a moment, it looks good for a moment, and, but, but as troubles come, as persecution comes, as we, as we go through tough times, it's just not able to stand against. There's an idea that's called easy believism that was rampant in the first century as Jesus was talking, as the early church was blossoming, and it's still so, so rampant in the 21st century church today. It means this, just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. Just hop in some water and you'll be okay. But it completely neglects that, 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 that before you, along with those things, surrender and repentance also must come into play. So you said the prayer, you hopped in the water, but then a year or two or maybe later down the road, it it becomes clear that you've never truly given your heart or your life. You've never truly submitted your life to the kingdom of Christ, to the rule and reign of Jesus, that you're fine, you're happy to, to, to look at Jesus as your Savior, but you struggle to look to him as your Lord. George Whitfield, he was a powerful preacher during the first great awakening in the 18th century, he used to preach to massive, massive crowds of thousands upon thousands of people. And, and, and every time he preached, it seemed that thousands of people were making decisions to follow Jesus. And, and whenever he was asked, whenever George Whitfield was asked, so, so how many people have been saved through your ministry? He would say this, I don't know, we'll see in a few years. A lot of people who want to follow Jesus, but there's also a lot of people who refuse to repent. There's a lot of people who refuse to submit. And so it may look good for a while, but whenever the trials of life come, man, the heat gets turned up. Or maybe with the rocky soil, we believe that our salvation is dependent upon our own good works. We trust in our good works more than we trust in the work of Jesus. We believe that if my behavior is good enough, then my relationship with Jesus will, by proxy, be good as well. But you know as well as I do that you can fake good behavior for a time. But besides, Jesus is much more interested in your heart than he is your behavior. But as a result of this thinking, and whenever this kind of thinking sneaks in, and whenever hard times come, and whenever trials arise, it's easy for us to believe that I'm a good person, so why would God allow this to me? And that Jesus Come to me and all will be good. In fact, he pretty much says the exact opposite. Come to me and you will have trouble. We try to explain away the trials. We try to explain away the pain that Jesus has said we would face. But what Jesus wants us to know is that being a Jesus follower doesn't mean that you'll never face trials. What it means is that you will never have to face trials alone. But if you have no root, we'll miss this. Then the third soil is the, thorn, the, the thorny soil is, is this divided heart, this distracted heart. This is when our, our hope is found in any number of places, 
but not solely in Jesus? It's not that you don't love Jesus. It's just that you love an awful lot of things just as much as you love Jesus. It's not that you are, are, are against Jesus or anti-Jesus. It's just that he has not taken the place of supremacy in your life. Our outlook is defined about what's happening in the world around us and not by what Jesus has already done for us. This is so, so easy to fall into, but it will keep us from experiencing the life that Jesus desires for us to live. The worries of life, they, 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 they dominate our mind. The, the deceitfulness of wealth is what we're chasing after. Our hearts are distracted by things that are outside of our control, often by the problems that we've caused ourselves or by the longing to make much of us instead of much of Jesus. Our focus may be on Jesus for our time, but our circumstances are constantly shifting that focus. And as a result, we become too focused on all of these other areas that we have no room left for the gospel of Jesus. And then finally, the fourth soil is the, the good soil, and, and we call this the, the kingdom worker's heart. This is the heart that the teachings of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit, they are at your very core. And they are evident to every single person that you come in contact with. You do more than you say that you love Jesus. But you prove it in the way that you live and in the way that you love others. You live from the overflow of what Jesus has done for us and in us. And so here's the question that I want to ask you today. Which of these, which of these soils best represents your heart? Because here's the beauty about this message. It's that there's not a single one of us in this room who's exempt. Every single one of us falls into one of four categories. And so maybe what you need to do right now is you need to take out a piece of paper, take out your phone, and you need to write down, this is, this is where I am today. An honest, true reflection of where you are today. Man, I am a rocky, rocky place. I've seen it happen in my life, you know, or, or I'm, in this, I, I'm in this place of, of, of distraction and my heart is divided. Maybe you're here and you're saying, my heart is so incredibly hard. But no one is exempt. So are you in the world with the evil one bearing down on you? Are you filled with joy but not quite sure you know what to believe? When trials come, how do you respond? Do you drift away from the church? Do you drift away from the people of God? Do you find the cares of the world and the lure of riches constantly distracting you from your walk with Jesus? Are you growing in your faith? Or is it wilting? Are you rejoicing in God but doing nothing what are you doing with the fruit of your life? Trey did such an incredible job talking about that fruit last week. What are you doing with the fruit of your life? What is the fruit of your life saying about your life? Do you have more of the fruit of the flesh? Sexual immorality? Idolatry? Putting anything above God? Hatred? Are you a hateful person? Do you struggle with fits of rage? Are you just like this boiling, you know, like something just getting ready to explode? 
Are you a powder keg? Are you selfish? Is it all about me and what I can get for me? Are you divisive? Are you prone to addiction? What's the fruit of your life saying today? Jesus said it very, very clearly. And you will know them by their fruit. You can convince yourself of whatever you want to convince yourself of. But the fruit of your life will always tell the story. Or are you experiencing the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Are you using your life to, 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 to serve God, to partner with God in his moving? Or are the gifts that he's given you simply rotting through misuse? Farming takes a lot of work. Growing takes a lot of work. And the kingdom of God is like a farmer planting, who planted seeds in the field. The kingdom is not a show that you sit back and watch, but a king, the kingdom of God is a movement that you step up and participate in. So are you participating in the kingdom of God? Or are you watching it like a show? There's no time like the present to start experiencing the kingdom in your life. To begin broadcasting your faith and the hope that you have in Jesus through the sharing of the gospel and helping little pockets of heaven on earth appear in your neighborhood, in your city, at your job, in this world. And the reason that all of this is so important is because the condition of your heart will determine your effectiveness in this kingdom. The condition of your heart will determine your effectiveness in this kingdom, and the condition of your heart will be determined by your obedience to Jesus. A true obedience, a true willingness to listen and respond. Because here's what I can promise you. The more you listen and respond to the Spirit moving in your life, the more clearly you'll begin to hear His voice. The more you ignore the Spirit speaking in your life, the harder it's going to become to hear His voice. But a true willingness to listen and respond, a willingness to be transformed by what the Holy Spirit is doing in you, transforming you from the inside out. After all, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, said, above all else, guard your heart. Jesus said, everything in your life will flow from your heart. It reminds me so much of the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever Jesus said all of these incredible, powerful things about what it looks like to live in this kingdom, that it's no longer the way that, that, that we've always been told, but, but, but now we live in a brand new way. And he says at the very end that anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The wind and the waves came, they blew and they beat against the house, but the house felt, stood strong because its foundation was on the rock. And likewise, anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
The wind and the rain came, so the waves they blew and they beat against the house, and the house fell with a great crash because its foundation was built on the sand. Christ is my firm foundation, the solid rock on which I stand. When everything around me shakes, I have never been more glad. The condition of your heart will determine your effectiveness in this kingdom. And the condition of your heart will be determined by how you listen and respond to Jesus. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for today, this opportunity to be able to make much of you. So Jesus, I pray that you will speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you will speak to our hearts. That you will convict us where we need to be convicted and that you will move us where we need to be moved. But God, please just let us be aware of you. Jesus, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Right now we're going to move into our time of invitation and if you need prayer today, Daniel and I are going to be up here but church, man, the, 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 the firmest foundation that we could ever, ever have is found in the sacrifice and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is not a more solid foundation that you could ever stand on in any situation in your entire life than the foundation of Jesus. Yeah, you've messed up. You've gone down the wrong path. You have not been obedient. But Jesus still stands here and says, now come. I'm not done with you yet. Put your feet on this foundation. Surrender to me. And let's go.